I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Stephen Bitterhoff on the show today of Von Boden. Hello, sir. Hey, man. How are you? How are you? Very good. So you came to New York to uh, work in art. Yeah, I came specifically to to study art history. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in art history and um, and very, very kind of targeted. Already at that point, I was kind of a Germanophile, so I wanted to... I was a little bit torn between Northern Renaissance art and contemporary painting, but um, in, the, in the end, I wanted to do that. And there was, there was someone, a uh, professor at Columbia, that I... Like I basically targeted him. I wanted to study with him. I came here to do that, and uh, and he said no. So that was that was kind of a bummer. <laughs> You're like, come on, man. Yeah, it was weird. I was very I was very good friends with a number of professors, kind of in his circles, and I still remember there was a dinner party, and it was very bizarre. I mean, I'd just come to New York. I was, you know, I'd sort of. I was in Pittsburgh before, and then I went to Penn State, so it's not like I was used to the kind of high-powered New York intellectual circles. It was not my regular... Um, my a lot regular. of steel workers in Pittsburgh, yeah. like, throwing around It wasn't the, exactly that. I was, it, yeah, it was, more just, it was more just the suburbs, you know, and a rather, yeah. like, uh, I don't know, a rather more metered tempo to life, you know, and it wasn't, um, I don't know, I wasn't as, like, savvy as my outfits and things I should say, and, like, I definitely wasn't up to speed on, like, you know, the avant-garde play last week that I should have seen right, had, like, right, a very definite right. opinion on. I was like, what? Who's that? Uh... And so I still remember that dinner party was just like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I heard, you know, and I just like, you know, was kind of silent the rest of the night because of my plan. Uh, my plans, therefore, would just been like, yeah, this is, of course, going to happen. I will go here and that will happen. And then uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just like I'll be a professor and then I'll go someplace awesome and I'll discover something pretty fascinating. I'll write a number of books and, you know, I don't know, there'll probably be parties and such. And that was kind of the, that was the plan. I mean, as far as like a 20, 22 year old Stephen Bitteroff had figured it out, that was, that was it. So that was a, that was a turning point. And then, so then you went, got into actually selling art because you were like, well, no research assistant. Yeah, job, exactly. So what happens now? Yeah, exactly. So I had been, uh, 
I've been doing a number of things. I mean, I came to New York, you know, the proverbial, like a few hundred bucks in my pocket and like just was going to figure it out. And my plan was to take a little bit of time between undergrad and grad school to to make money for grad school. Um, so I was waiting on tables and I'd become friends with a few uh, guys who were doing freelance writing. This was like, this was post, I'd done a little bit. I caught the tail end of the dot-com boom where just like anyone would hire you for, you know, a few hundred bucks an hour to write copy for like, <laughs> right, some right. website that yeah. never even launched. That was awesome. Unfortunately, I was at the, the latter part of that. But then I got into the pharmaceutical industry and that was uh, not directly, but I would, I would write copy and launches and product launches. And so, so I was doing that, waiting on tables. And, uh, and then, yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, since college, through college, in fact, I'd been doing and before I'd been drawing, you know, I was fairly serious about it, but never, never really took it seriously that one could be an artist. It just seemed beyond like the, the possibilities to my, my suburban Pittsburgh upbringing. So, uh, but there was, I was doing art and people started giving me money for it. And that was kind of cool. And, um, and one of the first people to buy, buy one of my pieces, was, you know, very serious guy who later went on to open a gallery in Chelsea. And so when they did that, I had a gallery and all of a sudden, like without really doing a whole lot, I had a gallery in Chelsea and I was having shows and it was, it was exciting, you know, it was exciting. And it, Gave me the time to, you know, to sort of, to have a lot of other interests. One, one that developed early on was wine, um, and that, you know, and it was great. I mean, it was a really exciting time, and there was no, again, there was no plan to it. It just sort of happened, and there I was, and yeah, it's good, it's fun. And then you met your wife, like she bought a painting. As exactly, well. yeah. So, in fact, it was so the, you know, it's weird how, how much so many things happen. It just kind of like snap, snap, and that's it. So basically the per first person who bought one of my pieces, I shouldn't say the first, but one of the first, uh, was a very good friend of mine. He would go on then to open a gallery in Chelsea with his, uh, his wife. And his wife at the time was living with one of her friends, and her friend saw the piece and really loved it. And, and at this point, this, this is where the story gets very bizarre. I was drawing, there's that Albrecht Dürer, the Feldhauser, you know, yeah. the big rabbit or small rabbit, as it were. So I was obsessed with that. So I drew that on canvases five feet tall, four feet wide for about 10 years over and over again. So she saw it and she goes, oh my God, that's amazing. I love that piece. And he and Scott, my friend was like, well, I'm pretty sure he's been doing it over and over again. I was at his studio. He has like seven in there. Like you want one, I'm pretty sure, you know, you just ask, like, I'm pretty sure he'll give you one. He has more. <laughs> and at that point, honestly, I would have given them away for like new shoes yeah, or a yeah. meal. I mean, it's just right. like, I had a very small, like, studio that I lived in. I did my freelance and I did my art. So it was literally at a futon, would lay down during the day and put up at night. And it was like, that was my studio. So certainly getting rid of them because they're big pieces, you know, I had them like piled all over the place. So she bought that and, um, and we, you know, I'll be honest, we didn't, we didn't start dating immediately. It was one of those things, you know, I'd see her at openings all the time. So it wasn't something I wanted to like very quickly. So, um, so we started dating yeah, like a year later maybe, and that was it and got married. And, and then they went on to open the gallery and showed my work so it was cool and she was the person that kind of pushed you into a different career path of yeah yeah exactly i mean the way the way it kind of worked is i had all these all these parallel lives kind of running um i was doing the art which is very solitary i was doing all this freelance writing was very solitary and i was uh i was helping an author with a book doing doing research and that was all very solitary so she you know would come home and i'd sort of be just like bouncing off the walls and i'd I'd be bouncing off the walls and just a little bit manic. And she's like, you really need to get out and interact with humans. I think like that would be good for you. I go, yeah, yeah, that's true. But like, what do I do? I mean, I don't really, like I'm an art history major. I don't really have any skills. Like I don't bump into that many people. Or like, can you explain Richter's post-war, you know, paintings and how they interact with uh, contemporary German culture? And, you know, so she's like, well, what do you like? And wine at that point had already become, 
yeah, a very, a very interesting thing to me, like a very a strong passion at that point. And you know, I said, that was the only thing I could think of. And she said, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you get a job just part-time, just really just to get out there. In my head, I was like, great. Like, not only that, but I'll get wine at cost. Like, that definitely. Right, right, was, right. That was, like, that was one of the serious motivations, Eyes on man. the big picture. Yeah, dude, that was, that was it. It's like, wow, wine at cost. Like, that'll be awesome. <laughs> like, I'll just stand there all day, and then I'll just buy a bunch of wine, take it home, and I'll save so much money. It's like, this is incredible. Why isn't everyone doing this? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and when it happened just about that time, uh, Crush opened. And I actually saw the advertisers, not even an advertiser, saw a write-up in the Wine Spectator, which is not something, I don't think I had a subscription to it. I think I just like was flipping through it and like it mm-hmm. looked cool. And, like, well, you know, when you're on the outside looking in, it's very hard to gauge what's real and what isn't. And that was just, that's what I saw. Um, and Crush had good build-out and good press at the beginning yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. Um and it was almost, yeah, exactly. So, and I went up there and I, uh, you know, and I like walked around and, and to be honest, you know, like it, it seems very logical and very kind of, I don't know, deductive. I went up there, I saw the collection. I really liked it already. They're very strong in German wine, which, uh, which was right in the front. Yep. Like, right in the front. Right, yeah, right, exactly. When you walk in. Exactly. You walk in, it's right there. It's like, wow, that's great. You're like, like, where's the, oh, here it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Do you have, never mind. Oh, uh, Richter. Exactly. Oh, Max Ferdinand. Yeah, it's like trading out Gerhard <laughs> for Max Ferdinand. It all seemed very logical. So they had a great collection, and uh, and that was it. And I applied. This was in June of 2005, and I believe they opened March. You know, kind of soft opening was March or April. So this was, you know, literally kind of weeks after it, uh, it had opened. And uh, What was it like then? Like uh, people mm, running around frantic? No, much, much, much different. I feel like now we run around frantic or now, you know. Now it's a little more frantic there. At that time, it was very polished, very quiet. I mean, it couldn't be more different than the place it would evolve into. Not in a bad way. I mean, it's just they're trying to find their their voice. So it was everyone wore aprons. Uh, I was, I thought I was hired as a salesperson because I certainly knew wine. At least I knew German-Austrian wine very well and a little bit of Loire. Um, certainly knew very little about Burgundy, very little about Bordeaux. Um, but I thought I was hired as a salesperson. I go in there the first day and, you know, sort of like meet my manager and like, yeah, I think I got like a, you know, new collared shirt for it. And, you know, I was like ready to, ready to go. And, uh, and I walk in and he goes, oh, great. You know, glad you're here. Really, this is going to be exciting. So in the back room, there's a huge like stack of cardboard. Can you break that down for me? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, and here I am, you know, I mean, whatever. I'm, I don't know. I must be 30 years old at this point. You know, it's like going back and making, I don't know, eight bucks or nine bucks an hour. It was fine because I had the art. You know, it's like my ego wasn't tied into it. I'm sure. like, I'm good with that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, breaking down boxes all day definitely, definitely sucked. And I still remember calling my wife at that point. Was she my wife? Yes. Um, calling her and just going, hey. And she's like, oh, how was your first day? You know, like selling any good wine? Yeah. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm a stock boy. You're like, I'm pretty sure yeah. I should have studied more Joseph Cornell <laughs> box installations. Really should have, man. Like, right. I don't know, maybe Monet. I don't know, the Van Gogh. It's like you can can never have enough Van Gogh scholars. Uh, but, yeah, so there I was, a 30-year-old 30, 30 stock boy. And But it seems like things quickly moved along. I mean, within a year you were already collecting a, some sort of title. Yeah, it, it did go quickly. I mean, at that point, that point, and still, frankly, I think Crush's, you know, one of its key talents is that it, it identifies talent. <clears throat> and if it is in some ways unstructured, I think that's very bad for people who, yeah, aren't aren't ambitious or aren't I don't know active. And for people who are, Crush lets you find a place very quickly. And I think you know nearly everyone who's nearly everyone who's come up and is leading that store at this point, myself included, started 
at the bottom and, and worked their way up. And that includes Joe Salamone, who we were hired very, very close together and worked very close for a number of years. And Ian McFadden as well. I mean, all everyone came from the bottom and you prove yourself and, and Crush does not hold people back if you wanna if you wanna do something fun. So so that first year I was still doing art and I was still uh, doing freelancing, so it was part time. And I think they had asked me to come on full time, but I wasn't ready and I was getting married the next year and it just seemed like I wanted to go to Italy for a few weeks and that doesn't, you know, having a job really gets in the way of those sorts of things. Uh, so so when I get back from from my honeymoon and everything else, it was like the fall, it was about a year later. Um, I took the plunge and I think I, I'm not positive, but I think my first title was director of marketing, something like that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I did, you know, it's like I came because I'd been writing about pharmaceuticals and doing, you know, and frankly, an art history degree requires a tremendous amount of writing. And my brother and I both went to Penn State and he graduated with a master's in business or a degree in business in any event. And I, I remember having some conversation with him where he had never, never, I don't think he had written many essays his entire time at Penn State. It's like, you know, if you go to certain certain course, you don't have to do that. Art history had to write a lot. That was that was the thing. So I was, you know, some semi articulate and could get reasonable thoughts on uh, on paper. So I I took control of the email program pretty pretty early on. And I, I have to say, I mean, from my perspective as a consumer who gets a number of retailer emails, I think it's one of the more um, just uh, impressive uh, email programs that that a retail store offers in 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 the country i think in terms of um the way that it grabs your attention holds your attention teaches you something and gets you very interested in what it's teaching you at the same time i think is a very special mix yeah it seems like the i don't want to say formula but it seems like it's really come together in a way that seems to work on a consistent basis where you can send out a couple emails yeah and you know get a lot of attention built around a, a subject that could be fairly obscure sometimes, like yeah. a Jura or a certain Austrian wine or a certain sherry that where you know little attention had existed in the market before, and you know, I mean, how many people does it really take to sell certain of these wines? Sometimes I wonder if it's really more than thirty. But yeah. Yeah. you know, it goes from being five people to thirty people all of a sudden who are yeah. interested in this in New York, and all of a sudden people are opening them at dinner parties and stuff like that. I mean, it's yeah, it's pretty cool. I think. Yeah, thank you. And you know, I mean, I should say I was. I don't want to take all ownership for that because certainly it was a team effort. And Joe, who I mentioned before, and Ian, and a number of other people. Obviously, there's a lot of voices there. So this is not this is not something I dreamed up, mastered, known. This is something I was more a part of. Um, but I, but thank you. Yeah, and I and I agree. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of people doing interesting things. I do think though, when they began in oh, whenever this was, I mean, I think we did our first ones probably in the fall of of oh five, but they really kind of took the form that we know them that we know them today. Uh, probably in 06, 07. And, and I think especially at that time, they really were kind of revolutionary is too strong a word, but they were something very, very different insofar as, you know, at that point too, to contextualize things, that was like, that was the heyday of, uh, Australian wine going, you know, shooting like higher and higher every day. I mean, it's, you know, it's Which like, you guys don't carry at all. We know, and we never did. And it wasn't a, and it certainly wasn't as, it wasn't as easy a, an idea that like we don't like Australian wine and we are not Australian wine. We are about Burgundy and Jura and these things. It was more just like, wait, did you say Austria, sir? <laughs> oh, 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 you exactly. said Austria. I'm sorry, yeah, I thought exactly. you said Austria. No, I'm sorry, we sent you that case. I'm sorry about God. I mean, you know, it happens, right? Uh, it really wasn't that simple. It's more just there's so many hours. There's only so many hours in the day, and like this is what we really care about. And I remember being in meetings where it's like, God, you know, it's like. This like new Australian wine came out and it has 140 points and it's only 6.99. Like, how can we not do this? And it's like, and everyone would just sort of like yawn a little bit. It's like, just never, 
it just never moved us. And so, you know, I think we missed a lot of opportunities to make money. Um, but we sort of followed what we really cared about and what really, you know, inspired that passion. I, mean, I think the emails are very, are very honest in a way, you know, I mean, obviously they have to have some hyperbole and they have to, you know, like get the selling points across, but you know, almost without exception, obviously there's some exceptions, but al almost without exception, these are wines we really care about. And, you know, and I think the fact that we would email out a wine that we have, you know, 48 bottles of attest to that. Cause at the end of the day, we could call up a few people and sell it, but it is a little bit about, it's not just about moving product through. It really is about giving these areas that we really care about more attention and bringing them to a, a broader audience. And the fact that, you know, certainly we don't, you know, we can't take credit for the fact that Jura is exploding, but I think we had a part of that. And I'm really proud of that. The fact that, you know, we were one voice and among many voices giving attention to this area. Now it's really become, you know, not exactly canonical, but it's, it is not, I don't feel like it's as centric as it was three years ago. Because it's interesting, a retail email blast program, because it's a little bit the, the function of the press, and it's a little bit the function of the sommelier. Like, we're going to introduce you patiently to this new category, and we're going to uh, turn you on to a wine that's new and cool, which are functions that each of those generally had. Whereas a lot of times we heard about retail kind of following the critics, uh, being kind of dictated to by the scores, and relying heavily on walk-in uh, traffic or phone orders, whereas this was like a new thing where you were contacting a lot of people and in a way sort of changing the conversation for what was cool in the city, which is not the, a small city. It's a yeah. it's fairly important one with a lot of resources yeah, in terms sure. of wine, wine buying. So, I mean, do you feel like it kind of took uh, what was kind of passenger seat retail and made it driver seat retail? Yeah, you could you could put it that way. I mean, I, I think probably the way I would phrase it, and there's a number of stores, I think, more stores now that, that function this way, and I think it's important, is is driver's seat in the sense that you're you're discussing what you really love, and it's less about, I mean, you know, the whole point issue is, is a very complicated one. I think it's one that, like, gets less and less interesting every day as more and more people realize truths are more complicated than, uh, than zero to 100. But we did make the decision, you know, many years ago, this is, again, probably 06, 07, that we would not point to scores and certainly we've alluded to them you know there's a number of emails that have said like you know the holy triple digit perfection something something like that but the fact that a wine scored 87 or that a wine scored 95 really i mean just it wasn't interesting and it's not interesting now what really is interesting is the yeah the character of the wine the place it comes from the people that are making it obviously like the flavor profile and i think very early on um we you know we yeah, we we went to that area where wines are. You know, I think there's if there's like, like a general palette of the store, it is wines that are. It is for wines, I should say, that are more more acid driven, a little bit lighter, a little bit lower alcohol. These things that have become kind of buzzwords, but but you know, four or five years ago, to to talk that way was not exactly common knowledge. It wasn't common wisdom, and it wasn't exactly obvious that that's where the world was going. I mean, I even you know, this is the Burgundy thing too, the Burgundy train. I feel like. Even selling 2005 Burgundy, and I remember that campaign very well, like even with the greatest vintage ever, quote unquote, uh, since until the next one, even with that, you know, just, just five years ago, those wines were, 
you know, the top wines were easy to sell, but they were not commanding outrageous prices. I don't think it was evident that Burgundy was going to just explode and become the, the darling of kind of the world at this point. $2,500 for a bottle of Beaumar kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's I like... I knew that was going to happen. Good you know Lord. I mean? And, you know, and I look back and I'm like, damn, I could have... <laughs> the amount of Fourier I could have bought, you right. know, it's like, God, I probably could have got a few bottles of Griot. Like, um, But it just wasn't clear at that point that, you know, this was going to be the kind of way the world the world swung. And I think we we kind of followed what we loved, which was Burgundy, Champagne, the Jura, Germany, Austria, uh, Loire, you know, Northern Rhone, these categories. And like, they have become very important, and that's obviously helped us, but I think it was, you know, I don't know. But at the same time, uh, b- besides a palette profile, you guys also brought in the cultural context, and I wonder if that was something you kind of gleaned onto more readily uh, based out of the art history background. I think, yeah, I think so. Um, and we used to, you know, to be perfectly frank, we used to do much more elaborate, much more production-heavy emails in terms of they'd have sidebars and there'd be, you know, where in the world and a lot of a lot of cultural cultural and more geog- uh, geographical information that is not, that doesn't, isn't not in the emails anymore, but it's usually condensed into the main text because we found one from a production standpoint, they just took so long to make, so long to make, and they would condense the main body so much that you would just get this thing that, that felt like a bowling ball. I mean, it's like useful, but there's so much information in it, it was kind of hard to digest. So we've kind of condensed them, but for sure, you know, I think from, from the beginning, um, and again, I was a part of this, not, you know, not the, not the source of it, but from the beginning, we felt that providing a cultural context, a geographical place for all these things was very important, not only because it was what interested us, and that's sort of how we believe wine is produced, but also because a lot of these things at the time were not self-evident. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people know now where the Jura is and Germany, Austria and the Mosul and where these places are and how the wines are made and why is is a little bit more evident. But, you know, again, four or five years ago, I don't think I don't think everyone could like could pinpoint Austria on a map and sort of say like, of course, the Wachau is about 40 minutes, you know, due west of Vienna. It's not that everyone can now, but I think we're, it's more sophisticated. I mean, really just the market. And I would assume you, you agree and have seen this too. I mean, I just sort of feel like things happen lightning quick now where, you know, where the things that were assumptions or were, I don't know, were kind of flailing around five years ago now, you know, have six blogs dedicated to them and uh, are staples of kind of everyday conversation. I mean, it's amazing. I'm pretty shocked by it yeah. usually. And it's I'm a, like, wow, this is something I thought uh, was going to be between me and three people at the time. Exactly. You know, there's yeah. other people in other places writing about it. And it really it's kind of shocking. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. And it's amazing in great ways and bad ways. But it is really, I mean, it just moves so quickly. I feel sort of feel like you turn around and there's, you know, I don't know, more people knowing more. It's great. Yeah. And I feel like your own progression, uh, then you moved into more buying. Yeah, exactly. So from the wine director thing, then... Um, the the wine the wine buyer previously was Lyle Faust who kind of opened the store and was a huge huge or is and was and is a huge German wine supporter, and so when he left then in two thousand uh, two thousand eight maybe, um, Joe Salamone and I were were kind of put in that buyer role as a team and that was you know an incredible incredible experience um, one to be put you know to be put in charge and all, again this wasn't like Joe and I didn't run the entire thing there were other people buying and it was it's always it's always been a kind of team effort. Um, but to work that closely with Joe was awesome. I mean, he really is one of the one of the incredible brains of the of the wine industry. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's it's really and and the amount of the amount of influence that he is um, he's kind of wielded over. I feel like the New York market with with a large large amount of unaware because he doesn't talk about himself. He's not a, he's not a boisterous person. I mean, he really is he really is a 
has been a huge, huge part of Crush's evolution and my own personal evolution. And it was always just, I mean, yeah, you know him well. So it's like being able to taste with him Monday through Friday and talk to him and be like sitting right next to him and, and, you know, get into that brain every once in a while. It was an incredible experience. So that was, it was great. And it was just fun. You know, all of a sudden you're like, do anything you want, you know? I mean, you just go buy stuff and drink stuff. And the rule at Crush was always, if you believe in it and you can sell it, then you can do whatever you want. I mean, so we, you know, there's never been discussions of budgets or like this, you know, we have too much. I mean, it's like if anyone really looked at our inventory, it's like, well, you have too much German wine, too much Austrian wine, too much whatever, like never, ever, ever, ever been said. And if anything, I feel like Joe and I are on the more conservative side. So people would just be like, man, if you believe it, do it, like buy more. Um, so that was fun. And I think, you know, we, for the most part, did okay, you know. Let's see. I don't know. So you really personally kind of more focused, gravitated towards the German and Austrians, which was your dad was Austrian. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, it broke up a little bit of that way. One, because I think that's where my, that's where my, like, my true interest was in German and Austrian wines. Um, but then also, to be perfectly frank, like, Joe kind of knows everything, and I don't. So, you know, it's a little bit like, well, okay, I know German and Austrian wines. I speak German. I have this kind of cultural tie. I mean, God, I was you know, going to study Gerhard Richter. Of course, I should be buying Rieslings. Um, so it was one part that, and then it was also one part that, yeah, Joe knows he knows Jura, he knows Italy, he knows he knows the wine world better than most people do. And so he could kind of do the rest, as it were. Um, and again, we would always, you know, the, it really worked well because he would sort of source things and we'd taste together. And I think I had some insight into, you know, why this might work or why this might not, and vice versa. And it really, you know, I mean, if you find the right match, it really is kind of an incredible experience because you do, you know, and I, you know, we'll get to here, but in my, in my kind of new role as importer, one of the most like the one of the most gratifying, interesting, fascinating, and at times frustrating parts is tasting with people and tasting with good people. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know. In the retail business, I didn't have the chance to go around and taste with people like Aldo Sam and uh, Raj Vedia and you know the sort of like top Soms, and it's 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 incredible. I mean, you learn so much about wines you think you knew very very well, and that was the experience with Joe was just you know bouncing bouncing ideas off and tasting together. So it was an incredible you know incredible kind of team. I feel. Yeah, kind of dumb luck to have kind of fallen there. And then you started traveling more to Germany and Austria. Yeah, so what happened is, you know, as the store evolved, I, because I was at that point um, doing buying, also um, also doing a lot with the email program and the large-scale marketing, you know, the catalog, the holiday catalog, and a number of other things I would sort of uh, would own almost completely, um, it became a lot. And so I got, I, you know, to some extent was pulled more and more away from wine and a little bit more into management. And then when... Um, when the general manager left in 2010, I became the wine director. And that, you know, that's a, a really nebulous title that involves kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, really everything from HR and hiring and firing to making sure, you know, like the lights are working in the store to making sure the AC guys are coming to making sure we're, you know, seeing the reps we need to see and that we're doing all the things that, you know, a store of our sort of size needed to do. So I kept getting more and more pulled away from the wine. And it was, you know, it was fun. I mean, I enjoyed the management side of it. And there's so much, a place like Crush gets so much talent walking through the door and, you know, the chance to sort of like to talk with all these people and to, I don't know, to have a way of like nurturing and shaping people is really gratifying, really, really fun. Um, but I did keep getting more pulled away from the wine and the one kind of place that I, you know, said, listen, I'm going to do this. I love it. It's fine. I do want to like Germany and Austria. I want to, I need to keep that. Otherwise this is just like another job. And like, if I wanted, right, right. If I wanted a real job, I would have done this at a yeah, supermarket. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. If I wanted a real job, I wouldn't have studied art history. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. I right. want more than this. Um, and they were absolutely fine with that. So that was my one thing. It's like, I'm going to Germany at least once a year uh, and I'm going to do like the German, you know, I want to like 
have say over the German and Austrian wine collection. Um, and, and that was the bargain that kind of, that worked well, because that was enough that I could really be deeply involved. And this is also my nature. I mean, I drew, I drew a, one large rabbit for 10 years over and over again, like I'm slightly obsessive. Uh, and so the fact that I could just focus on these kind of very defined geographical areas was suited my, suited my brain very well. And it also then gave enough space to do the other things that, that needed to be done as wine director that weren't, were gratifying in different ways, but not, not there. So yeah, so the German Austrian thing, not only did it, you know, not only did it remain the focus, it became, you know, I feel like it grew with intensity every year. And who were you working with in terms of suppliers at that time? You know, I mean, for, for German and Austrian wines, Certainly, Rudy Wiest, uh, Rudy Wiest and Terry Thies, you know, the, the kind of big guys were, have always been a huge part of the program and continue to be. I mean, they have amazing portfolios, so that's always been, always been great. And then um, Mosul Wine Merchant came on, the, came on the horizon. And Mosul Wine Merchant was, you know, this was Lars Carlberg's kind of brainchild. And he, uh, and I have to give him a lot of credit, you know, for doing something extraordinarily hard insofar as taking producers that really were in the kind of nooks and crannies of the Mosul um, that had really, I don't exactly know how to put it, really strong personalities and really strong reputations in the Mosul among the kind of German German wine drinking intelligentsia, that's a demographic, uh, but were, you know, largely unheard of. And I remember when Clemens Bush and Knabel were brought over, you know, honestly, Clemens Bush I'd kind of heard of a little bit, uh, Knabel the same thing. I'm trying to think the other, Uli Stein, not at all, Lauer, not at all. Um, so, you know, I think it was really bold to sort of take this and, and bring it over with really kind of a shoestring budget and just a lot of a lot of knowledge and a lot of passion. And so I still remember him walking in the store in 2005, you know, and just, I don't, do you know Lars? Is like, I do. Yeah, okay. Is, yeah. uh, uh, I don't know, is like uh, in bohemian glasses and just, you know, slight sort of uh, shyness about him. He comes in the store and, you know, says, bringing German wines and you know of course like if someone walks in the store and says they're selling German wines like we're at least going to taste I mean good lord you know this I is, mean it's interesting because there yeah. weren't that many other between yeah I mean there really. was Terry there was Rudy there wasn't a whole lot else there was a little this and that exactly you didn't yeah. hear of so many others no for sure they kind of defined the market and I think they did it they did it with such yeah I don't know such power that that people almost didn't try to. And I do think Lars at that point and is living in Trier and this sort of remove from the, from the U S market was enough to sort of say like, well, why can't I do that? Cause I do think, I don't know. I think five, six years ago, the idea of doing that would have been like, you can't do that. Like they own that man. Um, but yeah, he just showed up in the store, said he was bringing in German wines. We were like, yeah, okay, let's taste. We tasted them. We're blown away. And it was, you know, this is a look back at kind of what we, what we, those kind of moments, you know, you taste something, you're like, this is good. And I still remember that with Ganavat, man. I remember that with Lars's wines where it's just like, this is, these are really interesting. They're unlike anything else in the market. And I believe, you know, I'd have to verify uh, this with him, but I believe Crush was the first, first customer. And we placed, we placed a very, very, very sizable order on, on that first visit, basically. Um, and I think we kind of remained one of the key, one of the key customers. And that was a huge, a huge, huge learning curve and a lot of fun. And you ended up traveling with Lars a couple times. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Lars basically, so he lives, you know, it's nice. He lives in Trier and he's, uh, he's, he lives in Trier and doesn't have a car. So if you go over there and you have a rental car, he's like all down with it. So you can, yeah, so I crashed with him any number of times. I mean, he was, you know, super generous to, uh, to let me stay there. So I'd go over, we'd hang out. And, you know, and what I also appreciated with Mosel Wine Merchant, what I try to do with Von Bowden as well, uh, is to, to be inclusive. I mean, this is not... With Mosul Wine Merchant was never 
oh, you want to taste with Willie Shaver? No, we're going to Clemens Bush. We're going to like jam our stuff down your throat. I mean, it was always, it's for the sake of passion, for the sake of scholarship, for the sake of discovery. So it's like, God, I really want to know what Willie Shaver's wines are like. I want to know what- Because they're good. <laughs> yeah, man. I want to know what Hogs wines are like. I want to know what Schloss Leeser. It's not like focus on your books. So I'd travel over them. We'd visit everyone. And it was never- it was never more than just really trying to see what's what's happening and what's exciting. And that was fun. It was just, it's for, again, yeah, it's for scholarship. It's for discovery. And that was that was awesome. So we'd drive around and visit everyone. Because um, he's writing about everyone now. Yeah. Like in that yeah, area. Yeah, for sure. But at that point, at that point, this is even pre-Dan Melia. So Dan Melia then followed, they worked together for a little bit. And then he kind of took uh, took the helm of Mosul Wine Merchant. But this was when he, you know, he had an import book that he was selling in the U.S. And yeah, of course we'd visit his growers, but we'd also visit everyone else's, and I appreciated that. And you were at that prune dinner where it was like the intro between Dan Milia and the growers. Yeah, when, yeah. When Dan was yeah. the GM. Yep. And I can't, I can't exactly remember. Maybe no, nah, I I met Dan a number of times before that. I don't exactly know where or when. Um, but you know, if you could like, if you could cast the person to kind of run that after after Lars, like Dan's the perfect person. I mean, has that similar. Similar intellectual depth to him. I mean, for sure, he knew the wines. It wasn't just like a smiling face who was trying to push Riesling down, you know, down your face. It was he knows the, he knew the wines. He knew the growers. Really had a passion and commitment for it. Very much friends with them. Yeah, yeah, right. very, very close. Um, and uh, and so it was a really very easy transition. And you know, and and to be honest, too, Lars remained and remains a very good friend. So it wasn't wasn't like one was dropping off the face of the earth and the other was sort of leading. It was more a transition that seemed. You know, for the situations they were in, very, very appropriate. And Dan, I think, like, ran with it very well. But at some point, Dan decided to go back to school and, and leave the wine business in New York. And, and that opened up a situation where you had uh, 10 Mosul wine merchant growers who were looking for representation. What happened next? Yeah, so this is this is a little bit of the turning point. You know, it had been clear to me at some level in my consciousness that the German wine and Austrian wine is what I want to do with my life. I mean, no doubt about it. Um but it was, uh, you know, there was no idea. There was no, it was just sort of see what happens. And sure enough, I'm, you know, I'm going to Germany on one of my, one of my trips, really just a kind of, you know, research trip. And, uh, and Dan calls me and just sort of says, Hey man, you know, I, there's some important things I want to talk to you about. You have time this week. And I happen to be leaving for Germany literally the next day. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I'm packing, you know, like things are a bit crazy. He goes, you know, I'm like, can we do next week? He's like, no, I think, uh, I think we should talk now. Can I come over? And I was like, whoa. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's actually, I'm standing downstairs in the lobby. Can you buzz me in? Yeah, like, open my door. He's right there. I'm like, what are you doing in my closet? That's weird. Uh, he's yeah. like, there's a lot of rabbits in here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was like, yeah, man, come on over. So he came over and we talked and he basically said, you know, he was he was leaving. So he went back to, to Harvard to just kind of get out of the business. He wanted to study history and teach high school kids. You know, it was very much a vocational kind of calling thing and he... Wasn't like wasn't good or bad. It's not like he was sick of the industry and all. You know, like the Mosul wine merchants. You know, like whatever posturing. It was just that he wanted something new. He really felt out strongly, and so he was leaving. And that was, you know, I'm, we were sitting up, uh, sitting at my table, kind of talking, and it was just like, well, I mean, I don't know. I think I kind of would want to do this. And he was like, man, just talk to them. I mean, you, you'll be there tomorrow. Right, you'll right. be there tomorrow. Like, yeah, that makes it easier. Yeah. Uh, and so that's you know, so I went there, and at that point too, it all seemed a little. It seemed a little vague. It's like, yeah. I mean, I still remember. So, you know, I would say the turning points for me, or the turning point maybe, was with Florian Lauer, who at that point, you know, kind of is at this point a little bit of like a culty producer from the czar. I mean, you know, his wines are very, very well respected as they deserve to be. And he had become a very good friend and Crush had been a strong, strong champion of the wines. And so we're sitting there talking and, you know, and he's like, well, Stephen, what do you, what do you think? 
and I'm about Mosul Wine Merchant yeah. ending and what happens next. And I go, man, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, I would love to do this, you know, the, 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 on the plus side. Like, I, I think I've had a part of creating your, you know, your yeah, identity in yeah. the I was the one US. of your first customers. Yeah, like I least, know your wines. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's like, again, I certainly don't deserve all the credit or even a fraction of it, but like I was at least a part yeah. of the people kind of singing your praise and creating your market. I know your wines. Like, I know German wines. I know... I'm like, I know more than your average bear, I guess, about this kind of, this. This, this is not this a large area. producer. No, for like, sure not, for sure not. small scale. Yeah, Like very in terms of volume. Scale. Yeah, all my guys are. Like I remember Shield Connect brought a bottle of 92 to the Riesling Fire yeah. that you set up. Yeah. And uh, Florian had never had an older vintage like yeah. that because they didn't keep them. Yeah. They didn't have like that stock of yeah. millions of bottles hanging yeah. out at the winery. You know? They're very well, I mean, they're. They are well-respected and have been in the czar, but they also have a restaurant kind of hotel thing as a lot of these small growers do. So they burn through a lot of their inventory just at the restaurant and by local customers who come by who have four decades and generations and generations. So it's one of those things that, yeah, they're not putting to, putting away a treasure chest. So that was that was cool of David and really kind of special bottle for Florian for everyone else to taste. And I definitely photographed that at Riesling Fire for sure. Um, but I remember sitting with Florian just sort of saying, listen, man. Like that, those are the plus sides. I know the wines, I'm passionate about them. I'm like semi-articulate at the very least. Like I think I can sell these wines. Bad part, unfortunately, I don't have an import company, nor do I really know how the hell to do this. Right. And he was just like, hey, you'll figure that out. Yeah. And, and how, was that difficult? Not, not, I mean, yeah, it's work. You know, you yeah. have to, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. There's a lot of like paperwork you have to do. Um, I don't think it's like any harder than a lot of other like tedious any, things. Right, 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 right. Some other <laughs> yeah, tedious dude, endeavor. Yeah. yeah, choose tedious bureaucracy and like, you know, right. you, you work your way through it. And if you really want it, you do it. But it's it's not fun, um, but it's not difficult. Right. Uh, but Florian, you know, I don't know, Florian putting his faith in me. Because at this point, again, small producer, but had some weight to him, you know, carried some like critical acclaim and had some heat. And for him to sort of say, yeah, I'll go with this kind of no name was was a bit of a turning point so far. I sort of believed that it actually could happen. So and, I would, I would, and you put together a couple other growers. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I spoke with all of them, and they all remain very good friends. I mean, talking about the inclusiveness with uh, the Mosul Wine Merchant sort of establishes a theme. I mean, that's wildly important to me. It really is. So, you know, with with uh, Steinmetz, Stefan Steinmetz, who went with Grand Cru, like, I don't know, I still drink the wines. I talk about them. I mean, you know, I think this is true. You talk to most of the people I visit sale, selling for Von Bode, and, like, I talk about my wines the most, but I probably spend like a quarter of the time talking about other producers, growers, because I think it's interesting, man. And these, and I really believe that yeah, if German wines are going to going to rise to the level I think they deserve to be at, at least within the wider consciousness, like we have to increase the size of the pie. It's not about just trying to like it's not musical chairs where it's like you run and you get on that chair, or else someone's going to take it from you. It's like we have to grow this together. Um, so, you know, so I spoke with almost all the Mosul Wine Merchant producers and, and some came with me and some ch chose not to, which is, you know, really perfectly cool. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, obviously, and frankly, it was probably for the best just because, because there's only so much breadth. Like I'm one person at this point, I've, obviously I hope to grow, but Von Bode, my little import company is me. Um, and so, and so taking on, you know, eight, 10 growers just to begin would have been, would have been too much. So it ended up being uh, Florian Lauer, Weingut Peter Lauer, uh, Uli Stein at Weingut Stein, Weiser Kunstler. Uh, and then, then this young guy who was not part of um, Mosel Wine Merchant, Julian Hart, who's a, a kind of young and up and coming guy who I met through Klaus Peter Keller. So they were the, the kind of initial four and, and we're, we're growing. Since then we've taken on two more. We have a uh, Volenweider, Daniel Volenweider. Who's you know a weird? Congratulations! Yeah, thank you, man. There's two more. Volinviter is a really 
bizarre story if you have time, I'll tell you about it. Uh, and then Lubensius Hof, which is a very, very small estate in the lower Mosul. It does really extraordinary, extraordinary wines, and those will be dropping, I don't know, in July, I think they arrive. Doesn't Volenweider have that vineyard where you can actually look into, like, its spa? Like, if you're standing in the vineyard, you can look into a spot, and there's all these naked people. So they actually call that parcel, like, the naked person parcel in oh, there's something like that. There's, if you drive around the corner, um, heading, what is this, heading upstream, the village I'm blanking on, but it's the famous, like, it's not, a, and if, if it's a vineyard, I don't believe it is, it's Naktarsh, which is, like, naked ass, so the... The like the, when you drive in the village, there's like a a little like there's statues of like an old lady holding a little boy and like spanking him on the butt, <laughs> and that was a little bit like you know that mid 20th century brand that kind of got developed right up there with uh, Liebfrau Mill. Oh, and, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So you know, in the times I've been in the vineyard, I haven't noticed naked people, but I will definitely I'll <laughs> except be, for you two. <laughs> exactly, I'll be, it was hot, man. All right, yeah. it's real muggy there, right? Just you, <laughs> Daniel, and the rabbit. <laughs> that could be worse. <laughs> So, I mean, but I've, he's got a little bit of a cult reputation. What's the yeah. story with him? So, Volenweider is very, very interesting. I mean, they all, basically, Volenweider, and I've known him for a very long time, you know, at least within the whole, I mean, I think I visited him in 2008 for the first time, maybe 07. Yeah, no, 08. Um, he is, he's in Trabach, so there's this kind of like hyphenated village that's hyphenated by bridge. There's Traben on one side and Trabach on the other. And he is in Trabach, and Weiser Kunstler is in Traben. And Daniel is part of this thing bought like a pretty big estate and so he had a big seller big and when i say estate i mean building he has i don't know he has at this point i think four hectares so he's, he's tiny but the building is big and so visor kunzer when they started actually fermented their first one or two vintages in his cellar so they were very, Those very are really good yeah they're great i mean they're among i think they're among the greats being produced in the mosul but so they they were very good friends they worked together and so i had visited him for a long time frankly i visited him probably more than I did Weiser Kunstler to begin. And he, his story is basically he, he is from a Swiss family that was not related to winemaking, fell in love with wine, and then had an Egon Mueller, so the story goes, an Egon Mueller Auslese, I think 92, or 90 rather, he had it in 92, and fell in love with German wines and Mosul wines specifically and decided like this is where his life calling was. So moves to the Mosul. I think he worked with, um, I'm sure I'm wrong with this, but Lusen Brothers, um, one of the kind of bigger, you know, bigger estates there. And did a few stints with Riesling. And then in 1999, purchased one hectare of old vines in the Goldgrube. And the Wolfer Goldgrube is a site that, you know, it has historical fame. It's one of these, you know, there's not countless, but there's numerous sites that in, you know, in the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s was very, very famous, rated very highly. And then as sort of, you know, as there was no author to kind of work it, sort of fell into, into disrepair. <clears throat> So he buys this one hectare, 2000 is his first vintage, and uh, and does very, very well with it. I mean, he really focused on sweet wines. Egon Mueller was his sort of his template. And so he was focusing on that kind of the product, the cabinet, Spadeleza, Ausleza, and dessert wines, BAs, TBAs, and very quickly developed a really huge reputation. And I feel like, you know, Wine Spectator, one of the kind of the big glossies, printed, uh, or printed, yeah, a review of his wines giving extraordinary scores. So he went from sort of zero to a hundred really quickly. And I feel like people then felt that they needed to engage his wines and bring them in because they're getting 98 points they're getting really high, high scores, but without understanding he's really an outsider and that these are cerebral wines, although they're very unctuous and that he doesn't produce much. And so it's, it's hard to work with a producer like that, where you, you're getting very, very limited amounts of wines. One wine gets scored very highly. Everyone wants that. You you want to buy across the board. You don't know exactly how to sell them. So it was, it was a little bit turbulent. By, I think, 2005, 2006, he had had four bunches or four stars in the Gomio, which is this, you know, influential 
uh, wine journal in the in Germany. So he'd become, you know, and this is at the level of Schloss Lieser or Kartoiserhofer, these guys, I mean, very serious company for someone who'd been making wine for four years, five years. Uh, he was focusing on the predicate system. And then when the financial collapse happened, you know, he was because Germans for the most part, the domestic markets are largely trocken based, uh, dry wine based. When the financial collapse happened and those markets collapsed, he almost, you know, went not exactly went bankrupt, but was, there were some really tough times. Um, and because of this, you know, because of this not really ever establishing himself as a winemaker, but then having these kind of glossy reviews, he was picked up by, by a number of importers and kind of bounced around and never, I don't feel like ever represented properly. I mean, you know, his, I've crushed Bob. We bought some, I don't know, 05 or 06. And this was Joe Salamone to give him credit. He kind of sniffed these out and we brought them in their incredible wines, but, but no one ever, you know, I mean, it's not easy. Even now when I walk into place, I'm like, here's, you know, a cabinet from Wolf or Gold Group. It's not like people are like, yes, I've needed a Gold Group for my list forever. This like, this completes the, this completes the circle. <laughs> I mean, they're hard to sell now. Uh, so I can't imagine, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine what it was like years ago to walk like in. Like an angelic glow <laughs> exactly. and like a halo comes it's down. Like, I have A through Z. I was just missing G for Gold Group. This <laughs> is it. Um, they're not easy to sell now, but, you know. But I feel like I can at least give them the context they deserve. And if they, I feel like if it fails now, it's because of me, not because of Daniel's wines, because they are, they are incredible. I mean, I've done only two days of selling with them in New York and people's kind of heads spin. I mean, they were, they are very full throttle. We had that dinner. You had, remember the 05 we had? Oh, yeah. My pad. They're full throttle wines. I mean, they're unctuous. They have gloss, they have texture, but they are, they have purity as well, which is very important to me. And then they also have acidity. So they do have, they have structure. So it's not just about like. Really stood out. At oh that my dinner. God. Yeah. Okay. It was, it was high powered. So. And so then uh, let me ask you, I mean, and you've also brought in other products from some of the growers you have. Like I didn't see the sparkling from Lauer until you, you started bringing it in. Um, have you kind of looked at what they have and said like, you know, I can make a market for this. Most wine merchant did bring them in. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Maybe not in the quantities I did, and they and they haven't also. I don't think they brought in the older wines, which I've sort of made a point of, um, which is more honestly, I think availability. Like Florian just sort of said, you know, Florian you, winemakers are are weird, right? You never exactly know what's in their brain. You'll be sitting there, and it'll just be like, yeah, that's good. By the way, would you want any 1990 sparkling wine? You're like, <laughs> uh, like, why are you mentioning that as an aside? Like, like <laughs> right, cool. right. Yes, dude. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how it came up. It's like, oh, you want to taste this? And it's like, wow, that's good. Do you have any? He's like, yeah, man. I mean, not much, 15 cases. And you're like, uh, can I have those? And they're like, yeah. It's like, great. Like, well, can we just skip right to that? I mean, that's <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so that's kind of how that came up. And you know, the sect where where Florian is in the Czar, the Czar has a huge, very, very long history with with sparkling wines. Um, and Florian takes them, I think, more serious than your average grower. So I think the wines, even the you know the new release, which is now the 2009, is the the current kind of batch on the market, takes them very seriously. And there's a history there. You know, obviously, like high acidity works with with sparkling wines. And that's what the Lauer, or that's what the Czar is kind of gifted with in spades. So, so yeah, I think I maybe pumped it up a little bit from the Mosul Wine Merchant, but they were, they were bringing those in. And you've also gone national, like you're over in San Francisco sometimes. And mm -hmm. what's, uh, what's the look at, like, in between New York and San Francisco? I mean, you know, because of my, my background with Crush, obviously, when I kind of jumped and started Von Bowden, it was, it, easy certainly isn't the word, but I had the connections, I had trust. I mean, I think most people know me as someone who's, I don't know, has some intelligence and I hope more than that, at least integrity. No, I mean, come on. So, you know, so I was, I, at least I started at a, at a gallop, you know what I mean? I had connections. I was like, listen, and the, mar and the wines were here. I mean, Lauer at this point, 
had, was doing very well. They had a market for advisor consular chambers has done an incredible job of uh, supporting and promoting those wines. So there were there were kind of homes for it, and there were people who were very excited about it. So it was. I mean, I have a lot to do. This is not sustainable as it currently is, but um, but it's been going well, and the reception has been great. Uh, Lauer. Uh, Stein have never been in California before. You know, Mosul Wine Merchant was always working on it. And their their business model, you know, whether it's better or worse, I don't know. Their business model was to try and find distributors out there and that's it. And I feel kind of strongly that, one, I don't have that much wine. And two, I really want to control the message with the wines. Um, I don't want to kind of hand them off and hope that someone is saying the right things um, because I don't, you know, there's not volumes to do it. I want them in the right places. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not as eager to make sales as I am to make the right sales. And like, you know, this is a, this is a freedom I can have for a little bit. And obviously eventually this has to work, but so I wanted to control that. And so I said, all right, listen, I'm going to do New York and New Jersey direct and uh, California as well. And so that market is, is going along. I have to say, I've been there four times in the last, you know, five months, something like that. And you know, it's, it's harder because um, these brands are to some extent starting from zero. Obviously there's a lot of very sophisticated people in San Francisco and California at large that know Lauer's wines and know Stein wines, but there isn't the, the, there wasn't market presence before this, so it really is introducing something. Um, and two, you know, it's like there's a lot of cross cross fertilization. So a lot of the psalms here, no psalms there, and I've met a lot of people. And it's it was it was never kind of cold calling. Like I don't have to knock on doors and just be like, hey, man. Um, but you know, there's introductions and trust has to happen. I mean, you can't force this. The relationships have to happen. So I would say at this point, you know, after kind of after numerous trips, only now is it really starting to gel and starting to work. And you know, the placements I have there are very, very good. I mean, RN74 Raja Par has been an incredible supporter, and um, Chad Ziegler and Josiah, Josiah and Michael Mina have been incredible supporters from the beginning. That obviously helps. Um, Cezanne, which is a very, very cool restaurant, uh, is working with the wines. KNL. So you know. Things are things are happening and they're going really well, but it is it's harder. Uh, that said, I really like going to San Francisco and I like eating a lot there. And I I really like the, I mean, I am a New Yorker. At the end, of the day, I've been here 15 years. This is like this is this is my place. That said, I like going there for weekends. Like it's really enjoyable. I find I don't know the the attitude and the energy and the kind of closeness there among the Psalms like really really fun. And there's there are some extraordinary people. And it's really been one of the man, one of the I don't know why it should surprise me just because I never really thought it through before, but it's been one of the surprising joys of this whole gig is tasting with people, you know? I mean, I don't know. I feel like as a buyer, when I always looked at it, it's like, God, it must be so intimidating. You just have to like knock on doors and beg people. And you're like, you know, everyone, it's just like, it's, I don't know, you're the salesperson, right? You're trying to like push something on people. And I found it really not to be that at all, you know? I mean, again, the level of wines I'm working with and my, the production levels, I don't have to sell to everyone, but it's been nothing, yeah, nothing less than fun to like knock on doors and taste with people, really smart psalms and wine buyers who are super interested in passion. Are, and are they all buying pallets? No, but it's really fun. It's really fun to taste together and get people's ideas. And I do feel like the best visits are the ones you walk away from and you feel like you've learned more about your producer because things they've said and discussions you've had and comparisons. I mean, it's great. It's really incredible. Thinking about discussions and comparisons, you did do the Riesling Fire, which was a really interesting event that you've held twice, and the second one was quite a bit bigger than the first one. Just once. One. Uh, oh. I did the Austrian. I did like a little Austrian La Palais thing. It's yeah, seasonal. It like yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I guess in that context. It was like uh, beta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was my, my, my development server version. Uh, yeah, man, that was – Riesling Fire came about, you know, so traveling through Germany um, – a lot of these growers have become very, very good friends. And Klaus-Peter Keller is one of, my, one of my very good friends. And he, you know, and this like idea, I have to say, was born was born drinking with him at some point in the early morning, you know, like probably three, four o'clock. Uh, 
and just sort of say, God, we should have like, we should have a dinner. Both both Klaus Peter and myself are very big Burgundy fans, so we're very aware of La Palais and everything that Dano Jonas has done in regards to that, uh, at least the U.S. version. And so you know, it's like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if we just get together a bunch of like German wine lovers and like you just pull crazy shit from the cellar and you drink it and like that's it. It doesn't have to be like you know what I mean. It doesn't have to be gilded. Nothing nothing super fancy has to happen. We're both like, yeah, man, that'd be great, God, you know. And then the next morning you have a hangover and there's a lot to do and you forget about it. And that went on for a number of years. And every time I'd visit him, be like, yeah, we really should do this. And it was it was that visit, frankly, with the Mosul wine merchant. You know, after that kind of initial visit where I visited him, I just said, listen, like, let's just do this. And this was so. This is pre von Boden. I mean, I'm not really thinking. I'm obviously thinking about it, but it's far from a reality. And it's just like, listen, let's just do it. And if it, at the end of the day, and all, you know, all I promised, kind of, Klaus Peter was that. I will host this. I will like, I'll bury myself to make this as, as good as it can be. It was really good. Yeah, it turned out it turned out better than I thought it could possibly, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, but, it's definitely a shallow grave if you got buried. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have a lot of reason to be surrounded by a lot <laughs> right, of bottles. Right. So More the, like a the excavation, pool. <laughs> yeah, the excavation in thousands of years would be like, this must have been a king. Look at all the reasoning around <laughs> right. him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah man it was just like listen i'll throw this party and if it like you have to know that if it's 15 people and we just have a bunch of like bunch of great riesling and we're in like a you know a chinese takeout like that's gonna be it and he's like dude that's cool it's just but that's it. not what it was it, it, it turned was. out to be and there are a number of like you know lines there are a number of kind of steps steps down the road that really like critical things had to happen and they all they all took a turn for the positive uh like katarina prune signed on very you know and i still remember being being at the Prum estate and kind of sitting there, you know, we tasted, and I'd met her a few times and we were friendly, but we're not friends, you know, I don't think she could have picked me out of a crowd of one. We're sitting there in the estate and I'm just going, you know, I'm like giving her the spiel about what I think Riesling Fire will be and uh, won't this be great. And I just I can't imagine how many visits she has and how many like kind of inane ideas, like people are like, we can make Prum, you know, bath towels, it'll be awesome, you know, like right, whatever, right, people right, selling right. her on whatever. Yeah. Uh, and she was just like, you know, she sort of thought about it. And at the end of the the tasting, was like, yes, like, I will do that. That seems like a great idea. I'd love to be a part. And it was just like, sweet Jesus. You know, if you sign on Klaus Peter Keller and Katarita Prume, like just as as hallmarks of seriousness, like, that's good. Um, so that was that was lucky. Then to have, you know, the others that came along, all of them were incredible, incredible winemakers. And yeah, and, and, and you know, to be honest, it was also just a shit ton of work. Uh, I buried myself for a little long time with that. And, you know, my, my December and January and February were not as merry as they usually are probably. And there was some point with my wife, we were walking to the farmer's market in Brooklyn. And I'm like a bit of a workaholic. I mean, I work a lot, as I think a lot of people in New York do. And she just kind of looked over at me and was like, this is too much. Like, yeah, you're right. This really, <laughs> this really is. It's a little bit too much. But it was great. It was super fun. But, I mean, a lot of people turned out. A lot of people yeah. bought tickets. A lot of people brought amazing wines. Yeah, it, it was, was incredible. I mean, so, you know, so how this happened then. So I get all these people on board. Um, so Zillikin, Dorothy Zillikin, Andreas Adam, Florian Lauer, uh, Thomas Hogg from Schloss Leeser and Keller and Prum. So it was a very focused group and it was perfect. You know, I mean, I... Frankly, anything would have been fine with me, but that was an incredible set of winemakers to have. And it was putting together the event. So we did this you know, fancy private dinner at L.M. Madison at the private room with um, Klaus Peter and Katarina. And then we did this great seminar at Bar Balud with uh, the four other growers. And then we had the big kind of Riesling fire dinner. And so, you know, like I put up this website. We had tickets. You could buy through PayPal, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, I was literally putting together kind of the marketing strategy. You know, it's like asking Crush, will you email about it? Asking Chambers, will you email about it? Calling my friend Levy, being like, will you talk about it? You know, doing like trying to get the word out. And frankly, I'd like 
I was also putting together a plan for the West Coast to have, you know, like a K&L or to have a Woodland Hills wine merchant or rare wine company. I mean, I was going to approach everyone and just be like, listen, I have, you know, I have up to like 90 tickets to sell for this, this thing. Like, this is concerned. This was all funded. This is not, wasn't Von Bowden. It wasn't Crush. It was me. I mean, this was just, this is my, my dough. Um, And so I'm like putting together this plan. And in the interim, I'm going to Germany to do some traveling. So I, you know, I sort of, everything's set up start doing a little marketing, you know, crushing chambers, do an email, you start talking about it. And I like, I sort of say to my wife, like, listen, I'm, I'll be in Germany. Like, obviously I'm on email blog, but it'll be a little hard to organize this. So if any, like if any orders come in, like, here's how you do it. You know, you just register this, you send them their receipt, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah, by the time I got, I mean, the second day she emails me like WTF, like help. And I, you know, I kind of call her and she's like, dude, it's selling out. By the time I'd come back from Germany, it was 90% sold out everything across the board. And so I probably could have sold, I don't know, 50% more tickets if I, if I'd had the space. And what was the highlights for you in terms of the dinner? Um, man, God, it's hard. You felt a little bit like my wedding, you know, like, except I actually ate more at my wedding than I <laughs> did at this one. Uh, insofar as, you know, you're like everywhere you turn, you have someone to talk to and you never, so I didn't, and I actually, you know, because of the budgeting and everything else, I sort of sold my seat. So I, and I figured I'd be running around anyway. It's like, whatever. So, uh, so I didn't really eat anything. I heard the food was very good and matching, you know, and, and yeah, I think they did a good job with that. You said it's, it was set up well with the different yeah, product levels. Yeah. Like yeah, that was a smart way to do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Cause I sort of thought about God, everyone, you know, that that's the beauty and the complexity of German wine is that you have, yeah, razor sharp dry wines and you have these kind of luxurious coating broke, you know, freak shows. And it's like, how do you, one has one, you want it like, that doesn't exactly work. If you want Can't to taste it, it back the to same back. time. Yeah. So the whole architecture and I have to give Pascalina Rouge to you know, tremendous credit. Um, for, for kind of help me shape a menu that really focused, like, all right, let's start with dries and work our ways to sweet. And everyone, you do your own tempo. I mean, like, I'm not, there's no, there's no chancellor of Riesling fire. Like, you do whatever you want to do. But if you want to, like, progress with things, that's how it goes. You know, I mean, honestly, it's so hard to pick out one or one or two either moments and or wines. I will say, um, that said, I will choose one or two. There was a, a Von Schubert 90 Absberg Spätleser Trocken that uh, John Gilman brought. Do you taste that? No. Oh, my no. God, dude. Something yeah, that table just, drank well, I could ah, tell. Jeez, Louise. And it was one of those wines. Of happy faces. Good Lord. You know, and we'd had the private dinner the night before, so we'd had 02, 02 04, and 2008 G-Max yeah. out of mags. I mean, we'd had some serious prune. Yeah. It would been an incredible night. And then, you know, and you get these kind of showstoppers. I mean, there was a 71 prune TBA floating around that was just ungodly so a lot of these things you know not to diminish it but like you have a wine like that and you're like this better be great and if it's great you're like great <laughs> it's lived up to what it should be it is those wines where you're just like ah, i wonder what 90 90 von schubert absberg spelees of trocken will be and it turns out psychotic like razor fine s- super nuanced detailed freak show i mean it was it was like still one of the wines that i like i talk about early schloss Leiser, which thomas hogg i have to give him credit you know that's a small estate we get along really well. You know, I think he trusts me at the same time. I was like, Thomas, you know, bring like the whole point of this is to bring great wines from your cellar and other people are going to do the same. So like, I just didn't want producers showing up with like, you know, the new, the new vintage estate wine being like, here you go, everyone. Right. 2011 is going to be <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And I have a tremendous amount to sell. So please drink. Right, drink. Right. Um, really was the idea was to bring rarities, to bring special things. And Thomas represented, I mean, he brought 92, 93, 94, uh, Spätle's Magnums from his cellar. And I think 90, 92, God, you know, my exact numbers are, I feel like 92, he was working at the estate and 93 was the first uh, year he owned it. You know, I might be off by one or two years, but these were his kind of seminal bottlings and he brought mags of each and they were exquisite, you know? I mean, they were, 
they were incredible wines. Again, just so, so focused, so racy, so youthful, you know? And again, you know, it's one of these things too, Provenance, man, you bring something from a cellar where it's been undisturbed for 12 years, 14 years, like that's, it's a really good recipe for something special. Well, I think you've uh, touched on a few recipes for something special, and I think it's it's obvious from the way that you talk about the wines, uh, how much they mean to you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. So. Thank you, man. It's been great to be here. Thanks, Levy. Stephen Bitteroff of Von Boden Imports. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.